Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think you must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. The Western world has turned its back on migrants, leaving them to cope with one of the most devastating humanitarian crises in history. And in a groundworking, oh, groundbreaking work of investigative journalism, Sally Hayden has wrote about that in her book, My Fourth Time We Drowned. Um, Sally, you've been covering this story for a long time, and it's not the story of people coming from Ukraine to Europe because of war, but you've delved deep into people coming uh, to Europe from Africa. Could I just ask where your interest in this subject comes from? Yeah, sure. Um, and thank you for having me as well. Uh, I started reporting on migration, I guess, 2014, 2015. Um, I was working as a staff journalist for Vice News in London. And um, probably people remember it was kind of the so-called migrant crisis when, um, you know, large numbers of people were coming to Europe. And David Cameron at the time came out and said something about like there were swarms of migrants in Calais in Northern France. Um, and so me and my editor, we were kind of looking at this and going, What's, what does that mean? You know, who, who are these people? Why are they here? Why are they coming? Like this word swarms is obviously kind of offensive. Um, so what happened was he sent me out to Calais. Uh, so that was August, 2015. I went out to Calais and that was pretty much where I started properly reporting on migration. I just met so many refugees from all over the world, both from the Middle East and from Africa. Um, and I had been given, I think, like a thousand business cards for my job at the time. So I actually just went around just handing out business cards saying, you know, get in touch with me if you make it to the UK, get in touch with me if you have any information you want to share. Um, and yeah, from there, it kind of began what's been years and years of reporting. Um, yeah, and, and I did, I did like some work in Syria and Iraq, you know, in the Middle East, but then my focus became more on what was happening in North Africa, basically because that was where people were contacting me from largely. And also because I felt like it was incredibly underreported and misunderstood. And that, that was, you know, what's happening is like people need to know about it and they don't. Um, did it shock you what you found in Calais when you went there for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I think the most shocking thing, honestly, was probably like like this kind of dehumanizing language that gets used. That's like, you know, like I said, swarms of migrants. Like, actually, you go there and like, lots of people who have like very justifiable reasons why they're trying to reach the UK. You know, first of all, they've fled wars or dictatorships. Um, and maybe then they have family in, in the UK or even they come from a country that was colonized by Britain and they speak English, you know, they listen to the BBC um, and they're, they're trying to restart their lives. I mean, I think what's happened in Ukraine has probably given a lot of people a bit more understanding as to how your life can suddenly be usurped and how you can suddenly need to start again. And of course, if you're then trying to figure out where you can reach security and safety, you try and go to the place where you think you have the best option of doing that. And, you know, it's only a tiny percentage of people that try to get to the UK of the, of the number that actually enter the EU. But 
Um, but it was my first introduction as to meeting a lot of people who were, you know, who were fleeing a lot of different things. And again, I think that also gets when you have this dehumanizing kind of language that groups everybody together, you're not recognizing that there are many different reasons why someone would be forced into this type of situation. Um, and they could have many different backgrounds and they may have nothing in common with each other, you know, apart from the fact that they're forced to this kind of um, desperate journey where they're trying to achieve safety and achieve security. Um, let's take a look at North Africa's place in all this, because the refugees that you mentioned there, you've, you've mentioned places like Iraq and Syria that you've been to yourself. Back in 2014, 2015, there was a lot of young people in particular coming uh, east from Afghanistan through Iran, many of whom were already in Iran when they made the decision to move to Europe. Then you have people coming from Somalia, from Eritrea, from sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so what place or what role does North Africa and Libya in particular play in this story that you're telling in your book yeah so libya basically um is one of the routes so the central mediterranean is one of the routes into europe that people take um so you have libya is kind of like the launching point for uh refugees who flee like a again a lot of different situations for example eritrea where there's like kind of what the UN calls slave-like um, mandatory military service that can last indefinitely. Um, you know, you live in a dictatorship, you don't have freedom of speech, you can get arrested for saying something against the government. And then you have Somalia, which has al-Shabaab, you know, conflict. And um, you like, for example, one of the people in my book that I interview is like a gay, a young, he was a teenager at the time, um, a, gay teenager, you know, who, who was living in this kind of uh, country where being gay was very, very dangerous, you know, so that was his reason for fleeing Somalia, but others are fleeing war or fleeing, uh, you know, it can be anything from like local threats to, to national threats. And then um, there was some Ethiopians, Sudanese, people fleeing from Darfur, South Sudan at the time, um, there was a terrible civil war, which I'm sure a lot of people know. And so some of my interviews with South Sudanese. So basically, again, you have like people fleeing their countries for various different reasons, but they all end up in Libya because that's where they're trying to cross to reach into Europe. And that route from Libya, Sally, is that, uh, you know, they're trying to get to places like Brindisi, they're trying to get to the, the southern tips of Italy. Is that right? Yeah, to Lampedusa, sometimes Malta as well, or yeah, um, yeah, Sicily. And given that, you know, that's very much a bottleneck, right? Libya is, or has been since the fall of Gaddafi, it's pretty much a failed state. Anything can happen there. So I've heard horror stories of people arriving in Tripoli, of arriving there, of being ripped off for all their money, of paying for tickets that never arrived, paying for flights that never arrived. What are some of the stories that people have told you when you're reporting for the book? Yeah, I mean, the yeah there's basically like kind of smuggling networks i think one thing to understand about smugglers like smugglers take advantage of a situation where there isn't a legal route so like you you have this strange thing in asylum law that you basically need to reach the territory of the country that you want to claim asylum in to claim your legal right to be there and so you know um a lot of these people are refugees, they have a legal right to protection. And if they can get onto European soil, then they can claim that right. So 
but they but they don't have access to a legal route to actually get there so that's why they end up taking these dangerous journeys um and then you have smugglers of course who have taken advantage of that so part of my reporting looked at the smugglers um and i actually came face to face with two of them later which was a very strange experience um but but basically uh so one of the routes is like from sudan through sudan so somalia ethiopia eritrea they'll go through sudan south sudan as well and they kind of in sudan they get promised it's kind of like a go now pay later scheme so they're told you will be in europe within you know a few weeks um, and you can pay the money once you reach Libya or even when you reach Europe, just so that you have some guarantee that you actually make the journey before you pay. Mm -hmm. But then once they get to Libya, they actually get held for ransom. And at that point, the amount of money that they've agreed to pay gets like, you know, tripled maybe or quadrupled. It gets a lot, lot higher. And at that point as well, they'll, they can be tortured. You know, their families will be called sometimes daily. Um, and basically are being extorted. So, yeah, I think people don't realize by the time you actually get to go to the sea, that could be like a year or two or even three into your journey because you've already been now held in, you know, a compound or in a warehouse for up to a, you know, sometimes a year, two years, three years, and your family extorted for huge amounts of money. And basically you're just trying to escape that situation as well as everything you've fled from before. And is the main motivating factor for these smugglers, it's just, it's simple money, it's it's criminality, it's they're going to exploit a situation because there's no legal route for people to claim asylum other than by getting to Europe? Yeah, I mean, it depends, like, you can talk to people, there are different opinions, because I think some of the smugglers started out just by providing a service, you know, a lot of them will often be the nationality of the people that they're transporting um but then there is you know there's like different levels of smugglers so there'll be kind of like the middleman the agents who live in the villages or in the communities that people leave from and then they're the higher up people and you know higher up again above them so it is like a network but um from what i spoke to it depends the more the harder that it becomes to reach europe the more uh, abusive these systems become and the stronger these systems become and the more money that they extort because they have the capacity to do that because of the desperation of people. And so I think some of the smugglers didn't necessarily start out, you know, as being pure evil, for example, but, you know, they start, they start making money, they start getting power, you know, they kind of lose a grip on um on maybe humanity or on reality and they start treating the people that they're transporting like cargo and what does it cost if you get to libya say and you want to make a crossing then to somewhere southern italy malta what what on average are they paying are people from afghanistan or from eritrea paying to get to europe yeah i mean i haven't heard of that many afghans in libya um i know that there's some syrians and yemenis and but yeah the it depends on the nationality because it tends to be like the east africans get extorted for more because they have especially eritreans um and even somalis they have quite like quite strong diasporas and so it's seen that they can raise more money and actually one of the like really horrific things that i've this book is that many of the refugees that get held hostage like this end up turning to crowdfunding online their families will literally post photos of them being tortured and say please can anyone donate money to this 
and you know, account to her phone number and that's to raise the ransoms. And this is happening like very publicly. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of like that question, how long is a piece of string? Like, it just depends how much they get, you know, how, how much they get extorted for and how many times. And there's a growing phenomenon. So what I, what the book focuses on really is that in 2017, uh, the supporting the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept boats of refugees trying to reach Europe and force them back to Libya. So at that point, it became very, very hard to actually reach Europe. And what happened then, and the EU said they were doing that to tackle, you know, to shut down the smuggling industry. But actually what happened was that gave the smugglers incentive to hold on to the people who were already in their control, which would have been like tens of thousands of people, and start selling them between each other. So people who have been like, you'll pay one ransom to one smuggler, which could be like $5,000, $6,000. Then that smuggler will sell you to another smuggler who then demands that same ransom again. And that can go on multiple times. And it's, you know, it, it, yeah, it depends how lucky you get, how, you know, whether they even let you on the boat. Because in certain cases, they don't even put them on the boat. Eventually they pay the ransom and then the their refugees just get thrown out like on the streets so it's not as clear cut as like paying for paying to cross the sea you know actually you're basically you think you're paying to cross the sea when you leave maybe Sudan but actually you're just paying to save your life by the time you're in Libya. Um, you broke up just a little bit there so I just want to raise that point again so what happened in 2017 was that the EU said no we're not going to pick up people out of the sea anymore we're going to force these boats to turn we're not going to guide them we're not going to sort of you know shepherd them into port we're going to send them back to Libya and that's where the situation arose where these people smugglers all of a sudden were in a position to extort even more money out of people does this have um, there's often a thing in Irish politics where we talk about that vote that happened a few years ago where basically an awful lot of people on the right and the far right right in the European Parliament basically voted not to share information about, you know, among themselves about these things. And that was really to sort of uh, to stop these sort of rescue efforts. Is that something that has an effect on the seas in the Mediterranean now as well? Yeah, I think we should clarify just to be clear. So the EU, like what they're doing is very smart. It's not it's basically illegal to return someone to a place where their life is in danger. So European boats can't actually, you know, rescue refugees or they can't return people to Libya. So what the EU has been doing is actually supporting the Libyan Coast Guard. So the Libyan Coast Guard is the one that intercepts the boats and returns people, which then it makes it legal. Um, so effectively, you're circumnavigating international law, which which says that you can't return people to a place where their life is in danger. Um, and your other question, in terms of the vote uh, a few years ago now, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just been, it, like, the Mediterranean is basically, like, a very small part. I mean, it's it's not very small, but it's, like, a small part of a much bigger crisis. Like, the big crisis is happening in Libya. It's the fact that, like, nearly 90,000 men, women and children now have been forcibly returned to indefinite detention. They don't have a legal, you know, there's no way to legally get themselves released. It's like not a legal system. And they're being locked up in these detention centers that are, you know, effectively part of this cycle of smugglers and, 
you know, torture and abuse. And technically the detention centers are associated with the government. The, you know, Libya has multiple governments, but the one that's backed by the UN, but in reality, they're run by militias. And like I've interviewed in the book, EU officials, for example, Frontex, the border agency, who say that it's not their job to monitor what happens in Libya. So they do actually do surveillance over the central Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. They, you know, give the information to the Libyan Coast Guard to help these boats being intercepted. But then they don't, for example, count how many of those refugees then die in detention once they're forced back. And so I think for me, I, I would really emphasize, like, that's why I wrote the book, because this is basically we've forced refugees kind of out of sight out of mind and and made it so that it's very very difficult for their voices to be heard and that's why this isn't being properly documented but you know when the eu says the migrant crisis or certainly you know before ukraine that the migrant crisis is over that's not the reality it's just that those people have been forced into a country where then they're not being you know it's not actually being registered what is happening to them where does the title of the book come from, Sally? My fourth time we drowned. The title comes from something that a Somali uh, refugee said to me. I can actually read it to you here. Um, he said, I was caught by the Libyan Coast Guard three times. First time from Karabuli, East Tripoli. Second time, Zawiya. Third time, Zuara. And my fourth time we drowned. And the fifth time I made it to safety. And for me, that quote, I mean, it means a few things. Um, it shows you how many times somebody can try and cross the sea and they keep being intercepted and they try again and again. And for him on the fourth time, because people are kind of stuck together literally for years, I mean, it's a very kind of communal experience. Eventually, all of your individual characteristics kind of get wiped away when you're effectively tr treated like cargo, you know, locked up, put in detention, held by smugglers, all of this. And so it becomes like a lot of the refugees I talk to, they speak about we, um, you know, they won't they won't really engage on like an individual case. They really it's about the collective. And for this um, for this guy, the fourth time he tried to cross the sea, there was uh, like a lot of people who were on the boat drowned, including two of his family members. And so for him, he actually survived that. That's why he says my fourth time we drowned the fifth time I made it to safety because he actually eventually reached Europe, but he's still incredibly traumatized. Um, and it's, you know, all the time, it's it's not easy even for the people who eventually make it. Imagine trying to make that dangerous journey like five times, the fourth time two of your family members die. And then eventually, if you make it, you know, what kind of, like, what kind of welcome do you have at that point? You know, and what kind of chance for rebuilding your life? So. Speaking of that, obviously, I live in Stockholm in Sweden. And in 2015, I think the number was 163,000 people came to Sweden. And the government did a certain amount of good things and then, you know, very much hardened its borders. You mentioned to me previously that uh, you, you're still in touch, I think, with a lot of people who moved to Sweden at that time. Are there any sort of stories you can share without sharing names of the people who made it to Sweden at that time? Yeah, I was in Sweden actually last June for almost a month. Um, I went around to Gothenburg, Umeå and Stockholm meeting different sources of mine who were in Libya for years before that. And Sweden actually has, I mean, yeah, the numbers, like, they're not amazing, but like, Sweden has been somewhat welcoming. I think they're still resettling about 5,000 refugees a year. Yeah. Um, and 
a large number of them, like literally that I know have come from, um, from Libya. So they go through a, there's a UN resettlement program, which takes just a tiny proportion of the people who are stuck in Libya. And um, they generally go through Rwanda or Niger, and that's where they do like the proper interviews with a Western country to be resettled. And yeah, a lot of them have ended up in Sweden. And um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many stories. I literally just went around for like nearly a month meeting people. I mean, some of them now have jobs. One guy works in a, a care home, like an old folks home. Mm-hmm. One guy works in construction. One works in McDonald's. They're like pretty good at Swedish now. They were t- teaching me like taxamike. Um, oh, very nice. All of the, <laughs> yeah, I went to, even to a language class with one of the guys. Um but at the same stage, it's very, very difficult because like two two of them that I met in Stockholm, we met in a restaurant and they kind of said, oh, we want to buy you dinner or uh, lunch, I think it was, like to say thanks for, you know, being in touch with us when we were in Sweden. I, of course, or in uh, Libya, I, of course, was saying like, I'll buy the lunch, you know. Yeah. Um, but they were held in a detention center for years when called Zintan, Um you know, they were held in various detention centers, but the worst I think was called Zintan. They lost like between them, like 25 to 30 kilos. So at the time they showed me photos of them, they were completely emaciated. Um, And that detention center, one person was dying every two weeks. And that was mainly just from medical neglect um, and not being fed, you know, and then tuberculosis was pretty rife. They were held in a hole for months. They weren't even allowed to leave the hole. And um, there was like literally a pile of like rubbish filled with maggots in one side of this hole. And yeah, just I don't think you can even imagine like I can't even imagine. And I was in touch with them at the time, like they were just all expecting that they were going to die. And um, I know that it's been very difficult for them coming to Sweden because in one sense, they're very grateful that they're finally there. But in another, they're going these atrocities are continuing and they're happening at the borders of Europe. And, you know, one thing that I heard, for example, in Sweden a lot was they were like really amused by the fact that Swedish people love pets so much. They were kind of saying the people here, they treat dogs so nicely when you compare that to how humans are being treated at the edges of Europe, you know, and then we get to this country and we see, and then they'd kind of say, actually, one another thing that's difficult is that they just stop talking about the past at all because a few had experiences where they tried to tell somebody about what had happened to them and just almost weren't believed because Europe Europeans just don't know that this is happening and that this is happening as a direct result of European policy. And when they try and talk about it, they kind of just get looked at strangely or shut down a bit or just feel like it's stopping them from making friends. You know, it's obviously not the easiest way to make friends if you like have this on your mind. So actually they're kind of being forced to forget about it. And that causes a lot of psychological damage too. Um, you know, particularly like sleeping problems, things like that. So for me, I was like, I was very happy to see them and to see them in a safe place. But of course, for them, it preys on their mind that they have so many friends and family and other contacts who like haven't reached that safety. I mean, this is why I'm not joking when I say that I think your book is one of the most important books that's going to be coming out this year or any year. And, you know, like, that's not to say that everybody who should read it is going to read it. I can hope they do have known many of these stories. But Sally, does it annoy you then or does it upset you or does it bother you when you see, you know, Russia invades Ukraine and a red carpet is, is rolled out 
for basically white Christian people in a way that absolutely hasn't happened from people fleeing the Afriki regime in, in Eritrea, for instance. Yeah, I mean, I think like, like here we should say, of course, it, like what is happening in Ukraine is absolutely horrific. And it's absolutely. like very good that people are being welcomed. And I also hope that continues because we've had various points in time where like it seems like the tide is turning positively towards refugees and then you know, there can be a backlash. And I really hope that that doesn't happen with the Ukrainians as well. I think for people who report on European migration policy, there has been like a kind of a glimmer of hope maybe coming from this in terms of like the fact that maybe it is possible to have more empathy or a more empathetic policy. But then as you say, like, like most likely that's because it's like white Christians as well. Like the majority are white Christians. And even I spoke to a uh, Eritrean guy in Gothenburg about this last week who said isn't it clear that this is racism like this as you know these things have been happening to other people and they haven't exactly they've been locked up literally locked up for years for trying to seek safety um, so I don't know I think we need to see how it develops but I think that it's important to remind people I mean 2015 the year of the so-called migrant crisis 1.3 million people claimed asylum in Europe and now Ukraine I think it's already more than doubled that um the number at least that have crossed into Europe and yeah we can't the other thing yeah I guess that it's important to remember is like you it's not the full story how many are reaching Europe because different borders have different uh controls on them you know and yeah, just because someone's in North Africa doesn't mean that it's not that they're not there as a result of European policy and that we shouldn't be paying attention and we shouldn't be aware of the consequences of what we are doing. And I say this in the book. I mean, I, you know, I, I even attack myself. You know, this is like all of us are responsible for this. All of us certainly as Europeans who are living comfortable lives bear a responsibility um, because this has been done in our names. And at least I'm hoping that the book means that people will be aware that this is being done in our names because I think many people don't even know about this. One of the details I wanted to ask you about was this idea of if somebody sets foot on Italy, as you mentioned, you have to get to Europe before you can claim asylum in Europe. But does that mean that they have to stay in Italy or does that mean that they'll be picked up and say, OK, you want to go to Sweden, we'll bring it to Sweden. You have relatives in Germany. How does that part of the system work for the people coming there? Yeah, it depends. I mean, um, so we have something called the Dublin regulation. That means that if you get fingerprinted, that you basically need to stay in the first country that you claim asylum in. Um, in terms of people coming to Italy, it depends really how they come. I mean, some Italy basically has, has received so many refugees that it's made it quite, and there's been a backlash against them. It's made it quite difficult in terms of like, you know, even getting a job, getting like, it, like a lot of um a lot of africans who reach italy then say they go on to be exploited for example in farms in southern italy and so i know that people don't necessarily want to stay there they'd rather reach countries that haven't had as many refugees just you know to to balance it out basically so it depends if you've been fingerprinted that's one thing and then sometimes there are exceptions so even if you're fingerprinted you can still go somewhere else sometimes there is resettlement um but it's kind of rare but like I did interview a woman who is in Dublin now in Ireland who was resettled I think from Italy 
but she was rescued on a rescue ship and Ireland kind of stepped in and said that they'd take some of the people who were on this rescue ship if they were allowed to dock. So that was, oh, sorry, there was a very big bang there. Okay. <laughs> that was how she ended up in Dublin. But yeah, it, it totally depends. Um, and they're different. Yeah, it, if you reach Italy, then sometimes people just tra- they travel on, they try to reach a different country or... You know, a lot of the time, I think this also isn't understood. They have family members already in in one country. So they, of course, you know, they might have a fiance, a wife, a, a aunt, an uncle, a sister, you know, and for them, they want to be where that person is. They want to be reunited. It's going to be a lot easier for them if they have a contact in the country. So, um, you know, so they'll continue on and try and reach that place. You're into your probably your eighth year of reporting on this particular story this migrant crisis that never actually went away uh, how are you in all this Sally does this sort of bother you does this keep you awake at night knowing what's happened to some of these people and that maybe there's not more there's not a whole more, lot more that you can do with than writing books and reporting yeah I mean of course it like bothers me I do I see I even say in the book I always get asked about my own mental health and that question does kind of rankle me a bit because I think like sometimes people can use that as a way of not engaging with the actual issues Mm. um you know turning the focus onto me who's like actually a privileged white person rather than saying you know there's like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in need and what actually shouldn't we all be paying attention to that them you know it's like they're saying i'm i'm rare and i'm doing something that you know is unusual when it shouldn't be unusual I think that everybody should know about this and everybody should be asking what kind of role they play and what role they can play mm-hmm. um apart from that I mean reporting wise I've come under a lot of pressure particularly like death threats legal issues um and that has made me slower to report than I you know to an extent that I kind of regretted a little bit Um, And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book to kind of put that information together, because also I felt guilty at certain points that I, you know, I did, I did keep reporting, but, um, but yeah, I also got scared, like, and I think if you report on something like this, you do come under pressures that people wouldn't necessarily imagine. And for me, I'm freelance, you know, so I'm on my own. Uh, A lot of the time, I don't necessarily have an organization for most of you know for most of this I was totally freelance so you know you don't necessarily even have an editor like one editor you're checking in with you're working for a lot of different people um or even you're just like doing the reporting yourself and then figuring out how to use it afterwards so um, after all these years of reporting on this story, and as I say, it is vital work and more people should be doing it. Um, it how would you solve this? If you had the magic wand and you could solve this overnight, what, what do you think is the most important things to do initially? Now, obviously, you know, democracy for everybody, human rights for everybody in Eritrea and everywhere else like that. But, you know, solving like failing that, what can Europeans do to solve this? Uh, yeah, I mean... But yeah, this is the thing. It's not just what's happening in Libya. It's how the, how the EU is responding to it and how the EU is. I mean, this is a Europe, like this is European, you know, and, and I say in that in the start of the book, I wanted to start documenting from the point that Europe is like undeniably ethically uh, culpable. And so in one sense, I'm not an activist, you know, I'm just a journalist. I just report. I don't know the answer to anything, but I do think that everyone needs to be aware of this and it's, you know, it's not something that should be ignored. I mean, it's, um, 
yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I, I even document in the book, you know, Europeans protest when, for example, Carola Ricatta, uh, the, the Sea Watch captain, I'm sure people remember when she um, was arrested, but she even says herself, like they protested because she's a white person. Mm. Like, and, you know, I think that uh, we've seen this again with the coverage of Ukraine, like just because people aren't white doesn't mean that you shouldn't be paying attention to what's happening to them, you know, and I, yeah, I hope that a lot more attention will turn to what's been going on in the central Mediterranean. And I know that a lot of people are also hoping that there will be some measure of justice. Um, and there are a lot of lawyers working on various legal cases related to this, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know if they'll go anywhere, but let's see. Are you hopeful, Sally? Uh, <laughs> to be honest, like, I think that, like I said, the Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine and the way that Ukrainian refugees have been welcomed has been in some senses, maybe it's offered a glimmer of hope in the sense that, yeah, like a more empathetic reaction is possible. But at the same stage, I mean, it makes you feel, you know, when you've been reporting on this and reporting and people just don't pay attention like that is very exhausting. And uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to be hopeful as well, because people are literally dying, you know, like huge numbers of people have died as a result of um, of what is happening in the central Mediterranean as a result of being forcibly turned away from Europe. And I think that, you know, it's, it's hard even to say you're hopeful when that is continuing, like literally on a daily basis. So, um, so yeah, I don't know is the answer. Uh, the book is called My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. It's out on March 29th. It can be pre-ordered now, and that's very important to authors, ladies and gentlemen. If you listen to this before it comes out, it's very important to authors because that gives it a push and it puts it in the limelight, and more people are going to want to talk to Sally because of it. And Sally, I'm very grateful that you took the time to talk to me. Yeah, thank you too. It's actually on the out on the 31st in, um, in Europe. The, the 31st of Europe. In America. Yeah. Okay, so the 29th is the public in, publication date in uh, America and the 31st then of March. But uh, hopefully people will be able to get their hands on that and pre-order it and have it coming through their letterbox on those dates. But for now, thanks very much indeed, Sally. Yeah, thank you so much as well.